uh, Luke chapter 11. Uh, without, without the risk of going too far into reviewing where we're at, because we're in the middle of the chapter, we're in the middle of a, an event that Luke is recording for us about the things that Jesus did and said, and, and what he was teaching his disciples, and how he was preparing them for the time when he would no longer be with them. He had been with them for three years now. They're on their way to Jerusalem for one last Passover feast. We know it to be called, as we look at it today, the Last Supper, and then where Jesus would be arrested and um, tried and crucified. And then, of course, rise again from the grave and ascend into heaven. But all the things that we're reading now, about now as they make this journey back to Jerusalem for one final last time together with Jesus, and Jesus has taken um, intentional uh, uh, opportunities to teach his disciples to prepare them. Uh, and and um, everything we're learning about in this chapter, it grew out of a prayer reading. It says that Jesus was praying, and when Jesus was done praying, we're told in Luke chapter 1, that, that a certain disciple, and, and we'll, we'll look at that a little bit, but out of this prayer meeting um, uh, is, is, is were one of the lessons, one of the, the, the things that Jesus was teaching his disciples. But also as we look at today, um, Jesus used the opportunity of a miracle and also this invitation to a dinner, which we'll get at and get to next week. But, but out of these three things, a prayer meeting, a, a miracle, and an invitation to dinner, what we see is that Jesus used these everyday occasions to give instructions to his disciples really about four important topics. And if you're keeping notes, um, uh, these topics are prayer, what we looked at last week. Um, uh, he wants to teach them today, as we'll look at about it even a little bit in detail today, about Satan, about an adversary, about an enemy. Um, he wants to teach them and teach us about spiritual opportunity and also about hypocrisy and and that's the total of this chapter, and we're going to focus in on Satan and some spiritual opportunity this morning as we look at the words of Christ. And, and, and it's just as important for us today to understand these topics that Christ was teaching his disciples. And just as important for us to, to understand them, but also to apply the truths to our own lives, just as, as it was for uh, important for Jesus' disciples back then. And, and I love it that, that Jesus takes these everyday occurrences, these these opportunities. He's such a masterful teacher and such a, uh, he utilized uh, uh, every opportunity to, to speak to people about God's love and about the kingdom of God and um, about life and, and, and eternal life in him. And, and, and it's a reminder for us guys that ministry, that, that sharing Jesus and talking about our lives as new creations in the life that we've been given as we put our faith in Jesus is that we can use the same everyday opportunities when we're looking forward to tell people about Jesus and about God's love for them. And last week when we began this chapter, we read through the first 13 verses, which was ultimately Jesus' response. It was his answer to his, to, to his disciples who had asked him this question, or, you know, implore him, please teach us, teach us to pray. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and in doing so, he taught, him, he taught them three key principles. And I want to just outline those as we continue on. Um, I don't want to go into detail. We did that all last week. But the first principle is this, if you remember. I love this, guys. Our relationship with God in, in, in the avenue or the vehicle of prayer, it's not, it's not rooted in friendship. We don't come to Christ. Uh, we don't come through Christ to God as, as friends. We come as sons. When we pray, we're, we're told to pray, Our Father in heaven. And prayer is based upon sonship. So when we pray to God, it's with the same privilege we see in the same favor that a child has with their own father. Second principle of prayer that Jesus taught is that we're to be persistent in our prayer life. And many times we read in the New Testament accounts and letters that the, the apostles that Paul wrote and others wrote to the early church that, that we're told over and over again this, this principle of being persistent, to pray without ceasing. And in doing so, Jesus gave this example, this illustrative example of a neighbor who was, was willing to finally get out of bed in the middle of the night, only after his neighbor continued to pound and pound and pound on his door and, and, and call out to him to, to, to answer the need that he had. He needed um, bread for an unexpected visitor. And, and, and the point that Jesus was illustrating for us is that if the persistence of an unwanted neighbor finally paid off, <laughs> Because he kept on knocking on the door of a reluctant friend, then how much more will our persistence to pray without ceasing bring God's blessing into our own lives since we are his children? 
And since we who are his children are praying ultimately to a loving Heavenly Father who is always listening to us, his ears always turn towards us, and we, we have, as the Bible tells us, unlike a neighbor who may be sleeping, we have a God who never sleeps, a God who never slumbers. And the last principle of prayer that Jesus taught is that God who loves us is going to answer our prayers by always giving to us what is good. And this principle also points out uh, that uh, the reason for why we're not always going to get what we ask for when we pray. No matter how persistent we are. And this is because we pray, and the Bible says that we often, James tells us, that we often ask for things that are not good for us. Meaning we ask for things, we ask amiss, outside of God's will, for something that might be harmful for us. And God, who is better than any earthly father, there's none like him, that he will not give us what we ask for, even if we're persistent in our prayers, if it's outside of our will, because he only gives good gifts. Now, as we continue on this morning through this chapter, and pick back up in verse 14. If you look there, we're going to get ready to read it. We see that as Jesus continued to make his way to Jerusalem and to the cross at Calvary, that the religious leaders who had been opposing him all this time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that, that at this moment there's this additional attack. They continue to attack Jesus at every opportunity they have. And, and they, they question him, they examine him, not, not to know who he is, but to try to find some kind of fault in him and ultimately condemn Jesus of some kind of wrongdoing. And so if you look there in chapter 11, verse 14, we read now of this account of what's going on. And it tells us that as Jesus, while he was casting out a demon, verse 14, and, and we're told about this demon that it was a mute. Okay, that's significant, and you may wonder why, and, and I'll, I'll get to that. But as he was casting out a demon, and it was mute, so it was that when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke. And it says that the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And others said, testing him. Okay, there's a key. We're told the motivation. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. And they're testing him because of this accusation. You know, picture it. The crowds are there. The people are marveling what Jesus had just done. And the scribes, as is their, is their standard at this point, they speak out. And, oh, gee, don't, don't marvel at him. He's casting out this demon because he works for Beelzebub. And, and we'll talk about who he is, the ruler of the demons. And, and, so, and so others hear that. And they're like, well, if this is the case, if... If, if you're not really working for Satan, so to speak, then give us a sign from heaven. Prove it to us. But he, verse 17, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, verse 20 is so powerful. I would encourage you to underline it. Because Jesus is, is revealing many, many things by this one verse. He says, but if I, cast out, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger, when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all of his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So in verse 24, it says, when... Jesus said, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and puts it in order. And then he goes and takes, takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. You can imagine being demon-possessed by one demon versus seven worse than the other, it would be worse than the first. And so in verse 27, it says, And it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore your 
for you and the breast which nurse you. But he said, to, he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. So, verse 33, no one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place, or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed to the light which is in you, not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Let's pray. Lord, these words that you spoke in response to these accusations that were made were words to instruct your disciples. And they were words of rebuke and words, Lord, to, um, that called, a, called the people there to, uh, to, 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 to a place of understanding. And I pray, God, that you would do that this morning as, you, as, you are, as we are studying your word and reading these accounts, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, I pray you would bring us to the place of understanding. Lord, that you would challenge us to come to the place of understanding. And Lord, you know that there are things in our in our lives, things that we've trusted in, things that we put our faith in, Lord, um, that uh, are not right, not good for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would turn away from them, that we would remain one foot in the world and one foot um, in with you. I pray, God, that we would turn away from those things and be all in, as much as you reveal to us again today. And we also pray, Lord, for the Vineyard Church here in town. We pray, God, that the word would be taught, your word would be taught, in spirit and truth. We pray, God, that um, those who are there would grow in their knowledge and understanding of who you are. That they would know you and understand the depth of your love for them in a new and fresh way this morning. Thank you for other believers in this community, Lord. And as the, as the world around us grows darker, as we come near to your return, I pray, God, that we would shine as lights, that we would hide the light that was in us, you, God, that we would shine it all around and people would come to know you and your great love for them. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you want to look back to verse 14 as we, we, we start to, to go through these verses, I want to point out, if you study through the Gospels, you know this. This is not the first time that Jesus, in his years of ministry, um, leading up to this place, at this point in time, this is not the first time that he had cast out a demon, uh, performed this miracle of deliverance, and then had these religious leaders speak up and accuse him of, of being with Satan or for Satan. But the fact of the matter is, is they they they, rear, they revealed their hearts each time that they did so, and they do here again, is that they revealed their hearts, their hard hearts, and how they willingly chose to close their eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. Seeing these miraculous things, the hand of God, the finger of God working through Jesus, and yet and yet boldly and willfully denying what was in front of them, instead of rejoicing over the fact that God had sent a deliverer. That God had sent a redeemer whom they were openly rebelling against and, the, and, 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 and against the truth that, that was revealed to them. And in doing so, seeking to, not only denying what was before them, but seeking to discredit the character of Jesus and the work that he had come to. And in verse 14, we're told that the people who saw Jesus, if you look at it, I, I mentioned it a little bit as we read through it, but it says, those who saw Jesus cast out the demon, they marveled at what Jesus was able to do. And in light of this, we're being told that we should 
that we should understand, in light of this, what we're being told, we should understand that the, the people in the context of what we're reading here, they didn't marvel so much because the demon had been cast out. And, and we see this because of the response of the Pharisees. What we see is, is that they're marveling um, because Jesus had cast out a demon that had caused muteness. You know, the text is so, we, we shouldn't skip over these little incidences that we, we read here, these little details, because they're given to us for a specific reason. And, and, and when we read other times where Jesus and his disciples had cast out demons as they were ministering, this is the only instance where we're ever told that this one was mute. In every other instance, we see Jesus at some point engaging in some kind of conversation with the demon. Uh, and, and in this instance, there was no conversation because the demon could not, had caused it, he had, had, he had made it so that the person who was possessed could not speak. And we see that the person who was possessed were then told that he did, he did speak, finally spoke, after the demon was cast, was the demon was cast out. And this caused the people to marvel um, because they, at this time, and, and still in, 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 in Hebrew culture and and, 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 and actually in other religions as well, as I, as I kind of studied out, there's this belief, and, and I, I, I'm not saying it's doctrine or even theologically correct, I'm just speaking out a historical truth, okay? But um, what, what, what they believe is that before a demon can be removed or exercised or cast out from a, a person who has been possessed, they, they have to, the demon has to reveal its name. And, and they believe that because in doing so, that the person who's performing the exorcism um, then has the authority and the power over the demon to cast it out once he knows the demon's name. Now, I, I don't know if that's theologically true. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. But historically, that's accurate to what we're reading here in the context of what, what we see now and being told. So this meant that according to the Jewish way of thinking, that this demon then therefore would, would be impossible to, to cast out because, because he made this man unable to speak and then unable to reveal its name, the name of the demon. And when we see that Jesus had cast out this demon without its name being revealed, the religious leaders, as the people marveled, then took the opportunity to seize the opportunity to accuse Jesus of working for Satan rather than working for God. Working for Satan rather than working against him. Because obviously there's some kind of right conspiracy going on if Jesus can do this without the traditional way of having power and authority over a demon. Now, the name Beelzebub mentioned here in verse 15 to whom Jesus was literally accused of being in partnership was considered by the Jewish people um, the, the Jews to be one in the same with Saint Beelzebub, uh, one in one in one in the same with Saint. That's what the Jewish people understood. But it was it was also one of the names attributed by the Hebrew people to the to the Philistine god of Baal. And when you study out the Old Testament, and you read about this god Baal or the Baals a lot of the time. And and this specific Baal, Beelzebub which literally means Lord of the Flies, was actually a, a derogatory pun because nobody's going to name their God, right? My God's the God of the Flies. And, and yet Hebrew people would use this name in a derogatory way when referring to the Philistine God. And this is because the actual name used by the Philistines was uh, Baal Zebul, B-U-L. And so it was Baal Zebul, which, which means Lord of the House or Lord of the heavenly dwelling place. And, and that's how the Philistines would return, refer to this false god that they worship. And yet, by changing the last letter of the name of the Philistine god, this Philistine god, the Hebrew people, they were cleverly saying that the Philistines' god was a god of the flies and, and not a god of the heavenly dwelling place. Nevertheless, Jesus, in this passage, we see that he borrows from this given name of the Philistine God in order to draw for us an illustration that we read about in verses 18 through 26. And we're going to get there, but this illustration about the strong man and his house. But before we get there, it's important to point out that the request made in verse 16, right? Show us a sign. The request made in verse 16 for a sign from heaven by those who testing Jesus 
was directly connected to this accusation that had been levied against Jesus by the religious leaders. So in effect, when they were asking for, this, for a sign from heaven, they were really saying this. They're saying, if you're working for God, if you're really working for God and not for Satan, then prove it for us. Just give us a sign from heaven, not just a, a miracle that you can do here on earth. They wanted more. He said, take it, take it another step. Reveal to us where you're from. And yet by this, what we know is that they were tempting God. The very thing that Christ had done, he refers to as the finger of God working through him. And they were tempting God, which scripture tells us is a, is a dangerous thing to do. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, it warns against this. And, and we know that Jesus, when he was in the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights, that Satan came to him. And, 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 and when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Jesus at one point re, re, rebuked Satan. It's actually, it's the second temptation, and Jesus quotes from Scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, and says, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. However, I have to confess, there's a part of me that wishes that Jesus would have answered their request. A sign from heaven? Okay, here you go. A sign from heaven, perhaps like something that we read about in the book of Revelation when signs from heaven will be manifested upon this earth, like when giant hailstones will, will come falling from the sky the size of, of Volkswagens. And I wish that Jesus would have caused a few of them to crash down next to them and go, okay, here's your sign. But Jesus didn't. And Jesus didn't because he knew that even a sign from heaven would not convince these hard-hearted Pharisees, these religious leaders at this time since they had already denied so many other supernatural works that he had done before them. Supernatural things, and yet they had still not put their faith in Jesus. And that's significant to me because it points out to us that their lack of faith was not as a result of lack of evidence. Do you get that? For the religious leaders here, their lack of faith was not for lack of evidence. Rather, it was the result of a hard heart, a prideful heart, a, 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 a hypocritical heart that would not submit to the truths that had been revealed to them. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul who would write in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1 specifically, all throughout it, and he would point out this truth that unbelief, all unbelief, even when it's in our own heart, unbelief is birthed from a foolish heart that refuses to glorify God. It's a choice. It's a, it's, it, I believe it's birthed from a foolish heart that refuses to glorify God, and it is never the result of a lack, a lack of evidence. And, and even more so, we see this true when we get when we get to the to the to the, to the when we come to the end and we stand before God in Judgment Day. Nobody will stand before God, we're told, and 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 be able to use this excuse. I just didn't know. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. And some it will be, some for those of us, it will be like, yes, he's Lord. And others it will be like this, you are the Lord. And it will be too late. And it won't be for lack of evidence. So instead of calling down a, a, a sign from heaven, Jesus responded, we're told, to their accusations with three arguments in the text that we read. The first is in verses 17 and 18. Listen to what Jesus said. In this first argument, as Jesus responds to him, we're told that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, pointed out how their accusations were illogical. And asked, why would Satan fight against himself and divide his own kingdom? Good question. And this was nothing more than Jesus asking them to use some common sense. Something that's not very relevant in our society today, I think. He was asking them to use some common sense. Yet when people willfully choose to deny the truth, common sense is one of the things that goes away. One of the first things that go away. They, the first things that people will walk away from. You have to. When the truth is, think about what goes on in our world today and how people reason and logic and come to the conclusions of some things. And, and, and if you've ever had conversations with people in the rationale that are trying to deny the truth is what before them, you go, man, that's a confusing path that you just took, path you just took me down. 
It makes no sense at all. And the fact of the matter is, is that God's given us all a brain. He's given us the ability to think. He's given us the ability to reason. And you know what? He expects for us to use it. He's going to hold us accountable to that. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is in Isaiah chapter 1, where God appeals to the intellect of his people, to the Hebrew people, who were are at that time specifically not only in a place of unbelief, but a place of rebellion. And that's where unbelief will lead to always, is rebellion against the truth, against who God is, against God's will. Yet God in that time, in this place of unbelief and rebellion to his people, in Isaiah chapter 1, through the prophet Isaiah, God comes to his people and he calls out to them and he says, Come, let us reason together. And he does so because he's asking them to consider the place where they're at, this depraved spiritual condition and about their need for him. Come, let us reason together about the choices that you've made, about the thinking that you've, you've, been, you've given yourself over to, to the unbelief that's in your heart that has led to this place of rebellion. And let me reason to you and with you about your need for me in this process. And God does the same thing for us today. And this is what Jesus is doing for these religious leaders. And God in that passage of Isaiah, and Jesus in this passage of Luke, and even for us today, God is simply saying to us, stop and think about it. Think about where you're at. Think about what's going on in your life. Think about the choices that you've made. Let us reason together. Now the second response to their accusation that Jesus gave is here in verse 19. Look, where Jesus asked them, he said this, he said, if, he, if he's casting out demons by the power of Satan, he wants to know then, then by whose power are their, his, their disciples, their sons, then casting out demons as well. And they were doing so. According to the context of the scripture, we can assume that, that, the, that the religious leaders, there was a certain amount of them, their, their disciples who could cast out demons as well. So Jesus is saying, if I'm doing it by the power of Satan, then well, what about your guys? And in doing so, by doing this, Jesus was pointing out that their charges against him were self-incriminating, right? If I'm guilty of this, then you're guilty of this. In other words, if he was guilty of doing Satan's work by casting out demons, then their followers, who were, who were doing also the same work, were also guilty of doing Satan's work. But let me tell you, the casting out of demons is the work of God, then and now. And with this question, Jesus... Listen, he left his, his accusers no room to argue. He took, he, he took that completely out from underneath them. Instead, and, and in doing so, he challenged them to answer his question. Did they really believe that he, or did, he, did they really believe that um, he was fighting with, or he was, he was on Satan's team, that he was fighting against, that Satan would be fighting against his own kingdom, and, 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 uh, and um, who, then, who their, their followers would also then be working for. And Jesus even took it one step further. And this is what we want to focus on through this part of this, this argument that Jesus brought forth, because Jesus doesn't always just leave it out here for, for us to, to kind of think about or meditate on. He, 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 he's, he's, a, he's a marksman that never misses the target. And he always brings it to the heart level. And, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not just making an argument to prove himself right. He's challenging these religious leaders, again, in a very loving way for them, to, and, 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 and firing an arrow into their heart with this argument. Because he challenged them through this, as he takes it to the place that really matters, he challenged them to acknowledge and even then to make a decision about his origin, and his mission, saying in verse 20, I don't know if you caught it, the verse I wanted you to underline, saying that if the finger of God was working through him, then the kingdom of God had come upon them. Obviously, the answer is Christ isn't working for Satan. And Jesus, Jesus levels the playing field as he disarms their argument and then goes, and then goes, okay, so if I'm not working from Satan for Satan and for his kingdom, then truly you've seen God's finger working through me on this earth, and the kingdom of God has come to you. And once again, challenging them. God challenges us. Am I who I say I am? And if I am, then what is our response? 
And we know over and over and over again, the Bible tells us that if we're going to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Deliverer, as the Redeemer, as our Lord, then we too must respond to that in a right way. How do we, why do we say, Lord, Lord, and yet not do the things that he tells us to do? It can't, it can't be left out in this, this place where it never is brought into our hearts. Now, the last response that Jesus made to their accusation was really in an admonition, further revelation, but an admonition to where the power and authority that was in question had really come from. For he could not defeat Satan unless he was stronger than Satan, Right? In order to defeat someone who's strong, you have to be stronger. And this is where Jesus used the name Beelzebul, which means Lord of the house. And he presented for us, for them, this picture of Satan in verse 21. This is where the illustrative connection is made. Satan in this illustration is the strong man. In verse 21, who is dressed in his armor and stand, standing guard over his palace and over his good of his goods. And we're told that now today, even still today, that 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 Satan is the ruler of this earth at this coming. For a time, for a season. But there's coming a day where he'll where this which has been which he has stolen through sin and lies and deception, that this will be taken away. Yeah, this is gonna happen. Give me a minute. The sun is baking my my computer. And now I gotta get to my notes. <laughs> Apologize. And so as Jesus comes to this place where he's using this illustration for us. Um, of, of Satan and, and him being the, the, the strong man, uh, what we see in this is that there's this invader, one who comes and takes the strong man out, takes his good. And what we know is that even though Jesus or Satan's the ruler of this, of this world for a time, and, and he's a strong man guarding his palace, guarding his goods, guarding the hearts of those who still worship him, in other words, what we know is that Jesus, the stronger man, He's invaded Satan's territory. And he's destroyed his armor. He's destroyed his weapons. And he's claimed his spoils. And this is exactly what Jesus would do when we look at this at this historical context of what we're reading here. This is what Jesus would do and, and has done through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave for us, for the world. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it tells us, you can look there. It tells us that through his death on the cross that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers of darkness. And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Furthermore, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, it teaches us that when Jesus died, he descended, it says, to the lower parts of the earth, and he freed those who were being held captive. And then when he ascended into heaven, he took with him those whom he had freed. In short, Jesus went to war. He defeated our enemy. He defeated what we, in a, of ourselves, are powerless to, mainly sin, Satan, and death. However, as we see here with the, the religious leaders, and we know it to be true in our own lives, that every person must choose where they are going to stand. And Jesus' response to these religious leaders, make no mistake, it was given an opportunity for, for Christ, God speaking through his son to go, where are you going to stand? What are you going to choose? Are we going to be for Jesus or are we going to be against him like these religious leaders? There's no middle ground. It's impossible to be neutral in a situation like this because being neutral when it comes to walking with or following after Jesus Christ means that, that if you're neutral, you're ultimately standing against him. This is what Jesus was pointing out in verse 24 with this, this example or this account of this unclean spirit. He says that that comes out of a man and goes seeking rest. Once we've been delivered from the, the power of the enemy, Satan who has been guarding over us as, as, as a possession of his own, once we've been set free, what are we going to do? 
And in this verse, in verse 24, Jesus points out how the man's body was the demon's house. But for some unknown reason, the demon decided to leave. And apparently the man's condition to improve. As verse 25 says, that when the demon when the demon came back, he found things better than when he had left them. But this man's life, really his heart, was still unoccupied because he did not invite God to come and dwell within him. So the demon having returned to find this man unoccupied and better than when he had left, gathered, it says, seven other demons worse than him to take up residence in this man's life, this man's heart. Consequently, this man's condition became worse than it had ever been. And the point is, is there's no neutral ground when it comes to spiritual warfare. Jesus is teaching his disciples this in preparation for the time that they were gone so that they would convey this message that there's, there's, there's no just making your life better on the outside. It's not about behavior. It's about what goes on in our heart, who we love, who we worship, who we allow to live inside of us once we've been set free. Who are we going to follow? What are we putting in? It's about the relationship. And when the relationship's right, then everything else will be right on the outside. But God's concerned about the relationship on the inside. Not just about things being cleaned up and looking good. The point is, is there's no neutral place in spiritual warfare. And even when we cannot see with our own eyes into the spiritual realm, the Bible makes it clear for us that there are two spiritual forces at work in this world that we live in, and we have to, we must choose between them. And as God continues to sanctify us as believers, purifying us, taking away the dross out of our lives as we are all put through the fiery trials of this life in order to be more refined and looking like our Savior Jesus Christ, as we do that, when these things are, are brought to the surface and scraped off, the question is, is, is what are we putting in? Who are we putting on? Is it relationship? Or is it just outward good works? Ultimately, that will lead to a lifestyle of hypocrisy like we see with these religious leaders. Give me more of Jesus. More of God's word. And so, even though we cannot see into the spiritual realm, we must choose between them. And Jesus pointed out, we must choose to which side we're going to be on. And Jesus pointed this out in verse 23. What did he say there? He who is not with me is against me. So we must all make a choice. And if we make a choice, if we, if we choose to make no choice, we're really making a decision to be against Jesus. However, taking sides with Jesus means much more than just saying the right things. Taking sides with Jesus is, 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 is about following. And, and this is example by the woman in verse 27. She cried out. Blessed, in verse 27, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. And with no doubt, think about this, there was sincerity in their words. There was boldness and courage. Think about the, 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 the atmosphere of what's going on here with the religious leaders taking the crowds to question what Jesus had done, to challenge who Jesus is, and causing him and, and accusing him of being with Satan. And yet this woman, hearing the words of Jesus, speaks out truth. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. And I think we can commend her as she was taking a stand with Jesus in the face of this open opposition that was coming against him. But the place that she had gone to, listen, the words of, her, of, of blessing that she spoke, apparently they were not enough by what Jesus responded. And this is why Jesus in verse 28 then said this. He said, he basically said, he didn't de deny what she said, but he said, he said something greater. He said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, when we take, up, take sides with Jesus Christ, it means that we hear his words and then we obey them. Blessed are we, and we when we hear and obey. And this is what I referenced earlier. It was Jesus at the end of his Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, when he said this to the people. He said, why? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? In other words, how can we today 
How can we today say, how can we say we choose to be on Jesus' side and yet do not do what he instructs us to do? And the short answer is that we cannot. And if, if we do, if we live like this, if we speak these things, not only are, are we giving people good reason to say, oh, you Christians are a bunch of, of hypocrites. And we are. We sin. We fall short. But there's a difference between sinning and falling short and saying, I'm on Christ's side, I'm for God, and not doing what he says, because in that we're deceiving ourselves and we're continuing to walk down the path that leads to judgment. And this is what we read about in verse 29 as we go on. And remember, it says there, And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah and the prophet. And remember, the religious leaders back in verse 15 had asked Jesus for a sign, right? A sign from heaven to prove that he was in fact the Messiah. However, the only sign he promised them was here in verse 29 when he said that it would be the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what we know now, looking back upon this, is that this was a reference to his own approaching death, to his own burial, to his own resurrection. And according to Matthew chapter 12, which is a, a parallel passage of what we read here, where Matthew gives a little bit more details, we see that the mention of Jonah, <coughs> as Jesus speaks about this, specifically refers to how Jonah was in the, the, the belly of the great fish, in the belly of the whale, for what? For three days, we're told, and for three nights. And in a like manner, we know that Jesus would be in the heart of the earth, in the belly of the earth, for three days and for three nights. And Jesus made this comparison, and he pointed in doing so to a future sign from heaven. His death and resurrection. A future sign from heaven that would come, who would validate who Jesus is because of his death, because of his burial, because of his resurrection. And from the grave, guys, the grave is the ultimate proof. The empty grave is the ultimate proof that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the pinnacle for us, and while we go, he is the Son of God. And Jesus went on to say in verse 30 that as Jonah looked, as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, who ultimately um, received the message of God that was sent through the prophet Jonas, which he preached, just like they were ultimately saved from the judgment that was coming upon them by their repentance, so too would Jesus' death and resurrection be assigned to them and to generation after generation afterwards of what was needed in order for them to be saved from the judgment was to come. But here's the key. They had to believe. They had to receive. They had to obey. And Jesus, we see here, who knew their hearts were told, knew what they were thinking, also knew that they were content with their religious traditions, their outward way of doing things, and would not believe his words. They would not receive him. And this is why he went on to speak also about the Queen of the South. We've come to hear the, the wise words, the wisdom of Solomon. And you know what this is a specific reference to? 1 Kings chapter 10, where we're told the queen of the south, literally the queen of Sheba, had come to Israel, and in that passage of scripture, in 1 Kings chapter 10, we're told a little bit about her visit, but more importantly, we told that before she left, she gave gifts to Solomon, and here's the key, she praised the God of Israel. And, 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 and we see through this that the Queen of Sheba, she had come seeking the wisdom of man, and yet she left giving praise to the God of Israel, the one true God. But these religious leaders now had someone greater than Solomon and his wisdoms. They had, they had the Son of God in their very presence, and yet they closed, they closed shut their eyes, and they closed shut their hearts to the truth, and only sought to condemn Jesus. And a person has to be spiritually blind, don't you think? A person has to be spiritually blind to, in order to attribute the, the, the Jesus' miracles to Satan and to ignore, to, to ignore the works that Jesus did right before their eyes and continue to live as hypocrites. Therefore, Jesus declares the, 
the, the Ninevites one day coming soon. And the Queen of Sheba will stand up. Those, these, 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 these people who believe, even though they, are, they were Gentiles, they will stand up as witnesses against this generation who had so many opportunities to believe and yet would not. And I think we should, I think this should capture our attention because every generation, listen, we think that, we, we may not think of it like this, but every generation that has come after the time that Jesus walked upon the earth, including our own, every generation has more and more reasons, more and more evidences, and more and more opportunities to believe even more than they did back in Jesus' day. Think about it. First of all, we have... We have the fulfillment of hundreds of other prophecies which have come to pass in these last days that we're now living in and will still come to pass that the Bible prophesies about. Furthermore, we have the 2,000-year-old church now and the testimonies of hundreds of millions of people who have given their lives over to Christ and have had their lives changed through the work of the Holy Spirit. Our lives, because of our faith in Jesus Christ and the new lives that we've received, the eternal lives that we profess, are testimonies, they're evidences. But more importantly, we have the completed Word of God, which includes not only the testimonies of the life of Jesus and His works and the death and resurrection, but it shows us a better way to live. And all of these things that shine now as a beacon of truth gives us reasons to believe. They are, as verse 33 indicates, Jesus went on to say, they are these testimonies, these evidences, these opportunities. They are lights that shine as a beacon of truth, giving people, giving us, even today, more reasons to believe. Why? So that people might see. But even though God's word and God's works are a light that shine in the darkness into this world, into this dark world, we see from the Pharisees that the truth, the light, must enter into a person's heart before it can do any good. Psalm 119 says this in verse 130. It says, The entrance of your word gives light and it gives understanding to the simple. And the fact of the matter is, is not even the brightest sun can enable a blind person to see, and it's because their eyes are bad. Likewise, the light of God's word cannot give understanding to a person who has spiritual, bad spiritual eyes, meaning to someone who has a hard heart, someone who is unwilling to believe, to receive the truth. However, you guys know this, that when we do come to that place, where we're brought to submission, where we humble ourselves and we trust in Jesus Christ, and then we're enlightened, our eyes are opened, and the light of God's word shines in. And the Bible tells us, we're going to end with this this morning, that we then become children of light. The worship team wants to come up. You guys can turn and open up your Bible if you want to follow along as I read this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. It says this, it says, for you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is, is, all, is in all goodness, is in all righteousness, and is in all truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship, therefore, with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Are we willing to do that today in the world that we live in, where people are calling evil good and good evil? Are we willing to expose the darkness? Because the Bible says here in Ephesians chapter 9, For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in the secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. And for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Christ will give you light. The important thing for us to see as we close this morning is that we must keep both of our eyes on God. 
so many things in this world to distract us, to tempt us, to lead us away, so that our focus isn't on eternity, that our focus isn't on the kingdom of God, that our focus isn't on God. And the reason why we need to do this, guys, because if we keep if we keep one eye on the things of God and, and, and another eye on the things of this world, what will happen is this light that we've been given will turn into darkness. The fact of the matter is, is that each of us is either controlled by the light as the children of light or barred by darkness. Remember, there's no middle ground. The sad thing is, the disturbing thing is, is there are people even around us today that have so hardened themselves against the truth and against the Lord that they can't tell the difference anymore between what is good and what is evil. And this is why the Word of God is so important, because it is, it is, it is a light that enlightens us. It keeps us in a safe place, and it even keeps us from being deceived by our own hearts. So this morning I would encourage you to continue to, to study God's Word, to know God's Word, to use it to guide your life. Allow for it to shine through you into the lives of, of, of those around you. Because we're children of the light. Right? Father, we thank you, God, for the truth of your Word. We thank you, God, that you've made yourself known to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful, God, that you have... Um, taken us from the kingdom of darkness and, and transferred us into the kingdom of light and the son of your love. That you've given us new lives. You've set our feet upon firm ground. We don't have to we don't have to doubt or worry about what what our future holds. I pray God that you would help us to recognize the darkness, the lies, the deception. And that we would have the boldness and the courage to stand up and rebuild to shine the light on the darkness that's going on around us. Father, we desire to know you more, so reveal yourself to us. And God, as we worship you now with one last song, may our words of worship be pleasing to your ears. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you guys stand with us?